Somebody left me a heart doily up here. Appreciate that. Thank you. I'm just putting it down. I'm not rejecting it. Get it later. Let's open our Bibles together to Revelation chapter 14. One little theological point as you're turning there, we, we preach before we baptize intentionally. Because if someone didn't know anything about Christianity, never read the Bible and saw a baptism, hard to know exactly what we're doing. It might look a little weird. So we want to proclaim the word, preach the gospel before you see the gospel. It helps explain it. So we're going to preach it. We're going to proclaim it with words. And we hope that there's hearing and it brings about faith and the Spirit's power. And then you're going to see it. You're going to see the visual. We don't get a lot of visuals available to us in the New Covenant and the New Testament. Only two, Lord's Supper and Baptism. So it's a special day. We get to experience one. Let's read together. We've got a good chunk of text to get through in Revelation chapter 14. Verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God, give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from saying, right, heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, for they, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. 
So he sat on the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had the authority over fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters of the vine from the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess that this picture of hell is what we deserve. If we were to receive simple justice, what is fair, what is owed, a just sentence, this is our future because of our sin. Lord, we are sinners by nature and by choice. We love the darkness more than the light. We look no further than sending the light of the world, Jesus Christ, God himself, into the world. What did we do to him? We betrayed him, we mocked him, we beat him, and we crucified him. Perfection. And we hated him. It causes us to look in the mirror, Lord, today and every day, and say thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the redemption, full and plenty. Thank you for the blood that was spilled that covers every sin of all those who trust in him. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your shining righteousness. We thank you for your courageous sacrifice. We thank you for submitting to the Father's will. Even when it meant you were crushed by the Father's wrath. Please forgive us. Please save us. Have mercy on us, Lord. Vile sinners that we are. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move this morning. You would change us. You would conform us to the image of Christ. You would give us endurance to continue to walk and follow Jesus wherever he may lead, wherever that leads. We don't get to decide. A servant, a slave to Christ does not get to decide. We simply follow. We simply walk in obedience to wherever you call us. So I, I pray you do a work of courage and faith in our hearts. And that some who are sitting here today who need to be reconciled to God would be. And I pray you would press your finger, Holy Spirit, so strong on their hearts that they could not resist. That they would put their trust in Jesus Christ alone today. Today. Pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. We've been talking the last few weeks in Revelation about the beast's war on the saints. Yes? 
And now God responds. Chapter 14 is his response. How, do, how does he respond to what? The dragon, the beast, the false prophet, the, the false trinity, what they're doing. How does he respond? Well, we see the saints in glory. He glorifies his people. He redeems them from the earth. We see the good news of Jesus Christ crucified, sent out into the earth one last time, last chance. That's now. And we see judgment of the wicked. Righteous, holy judgment. Justice. And I see you all this morning. Um, there's a lot of people gathering in a lot of churches, uh, a lot of people not, just doing their thing on, on Sunday, having breakfast, walking the dog, reading the newspaper, whatever they're doing. Every one of them has chosen a side. Every one of them. We're in a war. There's a war going on. It's unseen in many respects, but there's a war and everyone chooses a side. Nobody can be Switzerland when it comes to the dragon and the lamb. Whether you realize it or not, it's not a question of if you've taken a side, you have. Just a question of which side. I hear people claim indifference. Well, I don't, care. I don't really care about Jesus. I'm not invested here. I don't, it doesn't matter to me. But he never gave you that option. I hear people claim all religions lead to the same place. He never gave you that option. I hear people claim there's nothing after death. We just die. We go out of existence. But Jesus never gave you that option. What he did say was whoever is not with me is against me. Jesus is the great fork in the road. You have to decide which way are you going to go. You, you, you can't stay neutral. You can't stay indifferent. He didn't give you that option. It's really just a question, and this is the most important question you can ever be asked. Will you bow the knee to Jesus willingly now or unwillingly later? You will bow. You will bow. Every knee will bow to Jesus Christ and acknowledge Him as Lord. It's a question if you do it on terms of grace now or terms of judgment later. That's the most important question you can ever answer. And you have answered it. And you will continue to answer it until you die. Everyone has chosen a side. And if you've chosen Jesus' side, I mean really chosen him. He is everything to you. He is the center of your life. He is your greatest treasure. You won't regret it. You will never be put to shame. You will never be embarrassed of that decision. You will, you will never say, oh, shoot, I got it wrong. No one in heaven has ever said that. Now, you'd say, well, I think maybe the people in hell have. You might be surprised that they would acknowledge because they have to, Jesus is Lord, but they don't want him. They don't want to submit to him. Their hearts are still hard. Their hearts are still selfish. Only by the power of God does that change. But if you are with him, if you are with him, because you serve him in this life, he will honor you for eternity. That's a promise. That's the truth. My job is pretty simple. Tell you the truth. Your job is to decide. You have to decide. 
And while I'm still preaching, there's still time. <laughs> so I may just keep preaching for a long time today. Because, you know, Jesus hasn't come back. If I'm still going, i got 24 pages of notes here. You can't see it, but they're there. We might get old revival-style preaching going here. I'm just going to keep going until people start walking the aisles and raising their hands. I want you to get saved. I want you to know Jesus before it's too late. And we don't know the hour. We don't know the hour. Three points today. Promises, warnings, and eternal consequences. Promises, warnings, and eternal consequences. Whether you believe the promises of God, whether you heed the warnings of God, eternal consequences. Eternal. Promises, number one. John sees a heavenly scene filled with beautiful promises for God's people. Verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000. Now, can't go into it deep, but back in chapter 7, we said that 144,000 represents the full number of God's people. Twelve Old Testament tribes, uh, twelve New Testament apostles, times a thousand, representing fullness. Okay, symbolic number for the fullness, the full people of God, Old and New Testament who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. If you want to go back and listen last week, we talked about the mark of the beast, but this is one of the reasons we're taking that as a spiritual mark. That the mark of the beast is not a literal physical mark because the parallel to that, the, the seal of God, the, the father's name written on their foreheads is not obviously a literal written seal. So if you want, want more on that, you've got to go back to last week. We can't talk about it too much, but there it is. Then John hears a loud voice, harps, and a new song. Verse 3. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So angels don't get to learn this song. Elders, nope. Living creatures in heaven, uh-uh. Just you. Just the redeemed. Amazing. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. So, number one, first promise home on Mount Zion. Those who have died in the Lord are with Jesus on Mount Zion. They're home. Zion appears a lot in the Bible. Over 150 times, a lot in the prophets. Uh, and here's the main thing I want you to think of when you think of, of Zion, or when you read it in your Bible. Home. Home. When I tuck my girls in at night, a lot of times I will say, Good night, daughter of Zion. Because more than where they were born, more than where they live, they are of Zion. They are of Zion. This is their true home if they are in Christ. I want them thinking that way. I want them thinking of themselves that way, that they are a daughter or a son of Zion. Think of a person who makes you feel like home. Safe, loved, welcomed. That's Zion. Think of a place that makes you feel like home, comfortable, warm, 
a refuge, that's Zion. What do you say after a week or two on the road, business travelers? What do you say? I can't wait to get home. What do you say after a day or two at the in-laws? I can't wait to get home. Get me out of here. What do you say after taking the kids to Sioux Falls like three times in one day? Just get me home. Please, Lord Jesus, make it happen. What do you say after five days of vacation in the winter? I don't want to go home. I want to stay here. This, I, I, I think I might move right now. You get the point. We're made to long for a forever home. If you feel that in any small way, that's, that's a taste of what we should be feeling for Zion, for our real home, where the Lamb is there with us forever. Paul said it this way, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. How many of you feel that way? I talk to people, Christians, and I get the sense sometimes that they kind of want to be here more than they want to be there. Yes, we have purpose in this life. Yes, there is meaning. Yes, we have work to do for the Lord. But the longing of our heart should be, I would rather be there. And I feel that more and more every day as I get older. The first fruits of God's people are already there. They're home. We're close behind. Home has a name, Zion. Number two, second promise, blameless. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. This is the language of moral purity. John is not saying all who go to heaven are literally male virgins. Yes, we're tracking with that. This is why we have to be careful how we read our Bible. You need to take it on its own terms, not your terms, and say, well, I just read it literally. Well, then only men who are virgins are going to be in heaven. Clearly symbolic language for moral purity. Those who have not embraced and accepted the world's sexual ethic and immorality as a pattern, as a practice. Voice from heaven says that every Christian will be blameless. Jude says it this way, God is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. What a promise. Blameless. You will never hurt anyone again. And some of you need to hear that because you've hurt people. You won't be able to hurt anyone ever again when you're home, when you're blameless. You'll never have to say, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. So that daily routine for most of us will just be discontinued of having to apologize, having to say sorry, because you can't do anything wrong. It's impossible. You will never, no one will ever be upset at you for anything again. It's not a good feeling because you can't do anything wrong. And you will not feel an ounce of shame as you stand before the throne of God himself. You're looking at God. You're in his immediate presence like we are right now. And you will not feel shame. You will not feel embarrassment. You will not shrink away from God. You will be blameless, holy, without spot or blemish. It's hard to imagine 
because we feel guilt and shame for doing good things in this life. Like you stop by somebody's house, you bring them cookies, you say, hey, I just stopped by, I know you went through this major hard life event, I have cookies for you, I want to pray for you. I'm sorry, I'm probably bothering you right now. You know, I, I, this was a mistake. I shouldn't have come over. I, I'll just leave and never come back. Please forgive me. It's like we feel shame for good things that we do. Not just the bad things, but the good things. All that's going to be gone. Never will we feel that way again. Fully confident in everything we do because everything we do will be righteous. is that a great promise? In the presence of God, no shame, confidence, because we've made, been made holy, pure, blameless. Number three, rest. Rest. Look at verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Show of hands, honestly, how many of you are tired? Yep, look around. Also, whoever didn't raise their hand just volunteered for nursery duty. Tracy, are we getting this down? There's only like seven who are not tired. We need you. Everybody's tired. How good is it to hear that rest is coming? Rest is coming. The verb here, may rest, is a future passive, meaning... God is going to make you rest. He is going to cause you to rest. He's going to say, sit down, I got it. That's hard for some of you. And you know who you are. God's going to say, sit down, I got it. You're like, well, what, but I can help. What can I do? I can like clean up a little bit or just fix you something. It's like Peter, when he sees Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration, he's like, well, I can set up a tent. Like, are we going to stay here for a while? We got things, I could start a fire. A lot of you Marthas, okay, this is going to be hard for you. But God's, no, I, I got it. You're home now. Rest. The work is done. Jesus did it. Now you get to enter into my rest. Does that mean in heaven we're going to be sitting around playing harps? Lord, I hope not. I don't think so because I'm not interested. It me, we're going to be active. We're going to be working in heaven, but what kind of work is it going to be? All the toil, the bad of the work is going to be extracted and removed. So all that will be left is restful work. Okay, I don't, I don't, we don't know exactly what that feels like because we're sinners. It's a fallen world, but it will be restful work. God, Hebrews 4 tells us, entered into the eternal Sabbath. When he finished creation. But is God active? Is he working? Every day, you bet. Every moment. So God is at once at rest, Sabbath rest, and he's also working. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's working. That's what we will do. We will do without getting frustrated. We will run without getting tired. And I'm not going to jog. I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do it. I can't. It doesn't make sense to me. Why do you just run for an extended period of time and get tired? I don't understand. It's not fun. I'm not going to do it in heaven, Lord. I'm not going to do it, even though I won't get tired. We're going to learn, but never get frustrated that we can't learn what we're trying to learn. Okay, so those of you who have trouble with school, you, you, you get frustrated. 
That's going to be over. You're going to learn. You're going to be learning. I can't wait to learn without it being hard and frustrating. Rest. Rest. Entirely restful work. That's what the promise is. Number four, the gospel. Verse 6, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. In his unbelievable patience, God is giving the world one more chance to repent before the end. That's now. That's now. What is the eternal gospel? It is the message of what Christ has done. Not what you must do. It is not good advice. It is good news. This is one of the most important things I can ever teach you. This is one of the most important things you can ever get, you can ever learn, is that the gospel, by definition, is news, not advice. What Christ has done, not what you must do. In so many churches and Christians, this is what they get wrong. You know, they, they, good advice, as helpful as it may be, folks, it doesn't make dead sinners alive. It doesn't make dead sinners alive. It does not have that power. Go to Ezekiel 37, okay? What makes the dry bones live? Prophesy. Preach. Tell them what the Lord has done. He doesn't say, okay, bones, here's how we do it. You, you connect one to the other, and then you need a little of this and a little of that to make yourself alive. That's not the gospel. That's not preaching. Only good news has the power to make you alive. Christ, once for all, crucified. Christians get filled up with good advice every Sunday, and they're starving for good news. They are starving. Jesus did not come to help us save ourselves. You tracking with that? Am I right? Jesus came to save us. He didn't attempt anything. He accomplished something. He didn't say, build a kingdom for me. He said, receive a kingdom. That the Father's good pleasure is to give all those who love Him. You just receive it and say thank you. That's good news. How discouraging would it be if He said, you know what, you need to obey the Ten Commandments. You need need to not lie, cheat, steal, any sexual sin. You need to have me as, as number one in your life every moment of every day. How discouraging if that's my message. We might as well pack it up, folks, because no one's getting saved. Only when you hear what has been done for you and you receive it and believe it do you come alive. That's the only thing powerful enough to change a dead heart is the eternal gospel. And it must be proclaimed. It must be proclaimed. That's what I love to do. You love to share the gospel with people? This is the best news. There's nothing better. What else is better that we can tell someone else? It must be proclaimed. And you have all the power of heaven with you when you do that. So I have a challenge for you. This week, I want you to 
walk your neighborhood or if it's bad weather, okay, just look at the houses and pray for people in your neighborhood to receive Jesus. Don't look in their windows. That's weird, okay? Just walk past the house and see it from a distance and pray for them. That's number one. Number two, number two, I want you to invite someone from your neighborhood over for a meal. Practice hospitality. Just invite someone over. That's an expression of gospel love. And if the Lord gives you a chance to share the gospel, be ready. Maybe not. You're always just trying to sense where the Holy Spirit's leading. Maybe you need to build trust. But I would challenge each of you, each household, to invite someone over to your house for a meal this week as you pray. And be ready. Be ready to share and give a, give a testimony of the hope that is within you. Those are the promises. Now the warnings. Two warnings. Number one, give God glory. Verse 7, and he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, he who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So fearing God, giving him glory, this is the essence of repentance. It requires taking a step back, admitting that my way is not working because I'm trying to glorify the wrong person, namely me. Namely me. I wasn't created to glorify Justin. When I try to do that, it does not work. I was created to glorify God. I wasn't created to pursue my own happiness and success and uh, you know, have a good life. I was created to say to the Lord, here I am. Whatever will glorify you most, that's what I want to do. My life is not my own. How many of you can say that? Not perfectly, but that your heart is to glorify God more than yourself. It's his story, folks, not mine. He... he I'm just a small supporting actor in his drama. Okay, he's not a supporting actor in your Hallmark movie that has a happy ending and everything goes the way you want it to go and God helped you get there. God, you know, thank you for that boost. This is God Almighty. Mike Horton says it this way, the triune God is the sun on the horizon and we orient ourselves to that sun, not the other way around. Instead of start starting with ourselves, our plans, our purposes, our dreams, our accomplishments, and seeking to learn how God can serve our goals and desires, we begin with God. Now, you may not like it, but you need to hear the warning. You are not the center of the universe. God is. Now, that sounds like theologically we nod, yes. But culturally, that's very difficult because you are constantly told you are the center. You are the most important person. Whatever you want to be, whatever you want to do, do it. You can do it, kids. I mean, 
how floored would you be if you, if you said, what do you want to do when you grow up, kid? And they were like, I want to glorify God in whatever way he sees fit. You'd fall over. Maybe, I'm just having this thought now, maybe we should train our kids to say that. I want to be a doctor. I want to be this. I want to be rich. I want to. Here I am, Lord. Whatever will glorify you most. If it's going on the mission field, I'm, I'll do it. If it's being a, a, a stay-at-home mom doing laundry and dishes and caring for my kids every day, I'll do it. If that's what will glorify you. If it's working, if it's wh- whatever it is. Only when that happens in your life are you truly happy because you're made for God's glory. He formed you and made you for his glory. When, you, when, you, when it's me and my glory, you're not happy. And that's Babylon. Me first. That's Babylon. And it's going down. It is going down in flames. This life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. That's what baptism is. Death of me first and the birth of Christ first. So Babylon is falling, but you know the kingdom of God is growing because we're baptizing people. That's how you know you're on the right side. The kingdom of God is growing one person at a time, one miracle at a time. Babylon, on the other hand, is falling. Whose side are you on? Number two, second warning, hell is worse than you think. Verse 9, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. It's hard. It's hard even to read, isn't it? Because this is not abstract. Hell is a real place with real people, people we love. It is maximal retribution. It is unbelievable pain. It is unending torment. No reprieve, no respite, no rest. It's so much worse than you think. And I need you to believe that. Please don't doubt that. Revelation gives us a lot of different glimpses, a lot of different angles on hell. I want to press on one thing in particular today. It's common in our circles when we talk about hell to define it as separation from God. Have you heard that? Hell, if you just ask someone, kind of your average evangelical Christian, like, what is hell? It's separation from God. Okay, but what does this verse teach? Who is present in hell? What does it say? The Lamb. Jesus. Holy angels, but God. God is present in hell. The people in hell want nothing more than to be separated from the presence of God. Understand that. 
It is not his presence to bless. It is his presence to judge. He is there as judge. All blessing is removed from hell and those in hell. God is there but not to bless. They are separated from his blessings, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, which we all get very used to in this life. Even if you don't love Jesus, man, I sure like a a, a warm spring day. Man, I sure like this. Man, I sure like that. Hell is exile from all blessing, all goodness. It is to be utterly alone. And some of you are like, that sounds great. I love being alone. Sounds more like heaven than it does hell. Okay, let me argue with you. You love being alone because of the things you get to retreat into. You, 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 you watch a little Netflix, you read your book, you listen to your music, you have a glass of wine, you paint your nails. Okay, clearly this is a female introvert who is trying to get away from everyone. You go in the garage and you tinker with your hobbies, you get in the car and you drive. Uh, you know, you go to the golf course, you play around a little, whatever you do, I got to get away, I got to be alone. None of that is there in hell. You don't get to be alone with any blessing, you just get to be alone with your own wicked heart. Further and further into yourself, it is dark. And he is there, God is there always. He is both the judge who convicts you and the warden who jails you. People in hell would love nothing more than to be separated from the presence of God, but the Bible teaches he is there. It is only exile from his blessings, only exile from his grace. It's just, it's worse than we can imagine. And the Bible gives us these glimpses so that we might Try to enter into that and flee the wrath to come. Third point, eternal consequences. The side you choose in this life has eternal consequences. Do you believe the promises of the gospel? Will you heed the warnings to repent and believe? Eternal consequences. John gets another angle here on the return of Jesus. He sees a a scene of the return of Jesus. And remember, in the book of Revelation... It's not what happens next, it's what does John see next. Very important, or you get confused. It's just a series of visions that John's having. There's order to it, but it's not chronological order. What he sees is the end-time harvest. Grain and grapes, sheep and goats, godly and ungodly at the end, separated. Right now, we're together. At the end, we are separated. It ties in with Matthew 13, 30. Let both, grow together, let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. So that's the wicked, the weeds. The weeds and the wheat grow up together in this world, in this life, even in the church. Okay? There are wolves within and sheep without. But gather the wheat into my barn. That's the righteous. This is is the great separation at the end. Matthew, Jesus teaches it as sheep and goats in Matthew 25, 24. So first, the grain harvest, verse 14. 
Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. This is Jesus. With a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. So a sickle is like ancient ag tech. Okay, it's a long uh, uh, knife, curved knife with a handle on it that when you had ripe grain, you would use it to cut it and harvest it. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat on the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. The only thing Jesus is waiting for from this sense, the grain, to return, is for all of the elect to come home. All of the grain to be mature and ready to harvest. The gospel to reach that very last person. Can you imagine if you're the last person (laughs) to hear the gospel and believe before Jesus returns? That'd be pretty amazing. Maybe, maybe people will actually see him and repent. I don't know. But all we're waiting for, folks, is for all the elect to come home. And now, if you are a Christian, just remember, at one time you weren't. At one time you were not. And aren't you thankful that someone shared the gospel with you and it kept moving, it kept moving. That's our job now, to keep it moving. Second, the grape harvest. Angel with a sharp sickle, another angel calls to him, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. The blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle, 1600 stadia. Now on that day, a winepress had two vats. One vat was for the crushing of the grapes. The second was for the juice to run into and catch the juice. This is the image. Those who do not follow Jesus, the wicked, they are thrown into a vat and they are crushed with the wrath of God. And their blood runs out into the street. If you took it literally, four feet high for like 180 miles. Exact size of Palestine, actually. If you took it symbolically, this is completeness. This is the fullness of God's wrath. That's what the numbers communicate. Maybe that's offensive to you. Maybe, I don't want to hear this. I don't like this. I don't like this, God. This is too much. This is, this is, I don't like it. It's offensive. Righteous justice is only offensive to you if you are guilty. If you're the victim, I want justice. All of a sudden, justice is a good thing. If someone I love is a victim, they demand justice. But if I'm guilty, well, maybe, let's not get carried away here. We want justice until we are the guilty one. And my friends, we are all guilty. And maybe you say, this is overkill. Unending torment, are you serious? I mean, is it that bad? I don't know if we can really quantify what one sin against 
our creator, holy God. How, how bad is that? It's hard to quantify. I don't think I can do it. How many sins did it take to throw the whole world into sin and chaos and death? How many, how many sins? Just one. Just one. So when we get really wrapped up with this and, and it just doesn't seem fair, I think we need to take a step back and humbly say, we don't really know what it means to sin against the holy God and our creator. Even when we sin against each other, that's sinner to sinner. This is God. This is God. That's why it's a grape harvest. Wine typically is celebration. Yeah? Justice is a good thing. Justice is a good thing. Evil in all its forms is finally dealt with. That's a good thing. It's hard. It's hard to see. It's hard to take. It's hard to read. But I think we understand that justice is a good thing. That's all they're getting is justice. No one is being treated with injustice. So here's the deal. We're all guilty. We all deserve to be in the wine press. We all deserve to be crushed with the wrath of God. Will you trust the one who was crushed for you? Will you trust the one who took that wrath for you? Who was crucified outside the city so that you can come home to Zion? That's what Jesus did. And, and I just beg you to flee the wrath to come and run to Jesus. He is the only refuge. He's the only safe place. He's the only way you avoid this. Are you with me? Are you with me? Are you with me? Let's pray. Heavenly, thank, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. It can be difficult at times, Lord, but we thank you for it. We thank you for telling us the truth. If you didn't, we couldn't trust you. Thank you for telling us the truth. And thank you for providing a way of escape from your holy wrath. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, his shed blood on our behalf, his perfect life, his resurrection. We have to believe in it. It has to be real for us. And we pray and we ask that it would be. In Jesus' name, amen.